morning. It is 9 a.m. on this Thursday, the 30th of July, and we welcome you to Community Pulse, our locally produced program here on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. As a reminder, you can catch Community Pulse live Monday through Thursdays at 9 a.m. The backdated episodes are then uploaded to our website, kopn.org. You can also find them on our Facebook feed and Spotify and Apple podcasts. Today on the show, we are so very pleased to welcome Sarah Davis. She will be interviewed by host Dr. Elizabeth Allman. Sarah is a public health professional who is also a certified professional midwife, and we will once again be discussing schools. So with so much to get to, I believe we'll turn it over to the professionals. Ladies, how are you this morning? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to start with a little bit of data and numbers Uh, around the world. We are over 17 million documented cases uh, with uh, 670,000 deaths and uh, 10 million people who are recovering in the United States. We're still at more than a quarter of the cases with four and a half million documented cases, working up on 154,000 deaths with 2.2 million people still recovering from this illness. In Missouri, we're up to 47,899 cases with uh, 1579 in the last 24 hours. The top three counties are Wayne County, Rawls County, and Carter County. It's been a long time since the same county has been in our top number of increases uh, uh, more than one day in a row. Um, And Missouri is tied with Alaska as having the highest RT value, that is, the number of people infected by one case. So we're at 1.25. We need that number to be less than one to be bringing the numbers down. And as long as it's up that high, we're going to be growing exponentially. Um, In Boone County, we're up to 1,118 cases. Uh, which is an increase of uh, 30 or so from uh, from the last time that that was reported from yesterday. So we're um, you know we're in that 20 to 50 range of increasing cases every day. And what we know is that when we get up above 50, that's when the health department starts to talk about having difficulty keeping up with contacting uh, the facing contacts. So. But on everybody's mind, it seems like it's filling my conversations and filling my social media feed uh, is what are we going to do about schools? Um, uh, Jenny Chadwick and I discussed that at length uh, last night on Your Health Matters, and you can catch that if you want to on the KOKN webpage. And this morning, I wanted to invite Sarah in to talk about this. Sarah has a little bit younger children than uh, either Jenny or I. I don't even have a child that I need to send to school this year, but... Um, so, Sarah, you were digging into a little bit of the research, and I'm wondering if you can give sort of an overview of what you found about what we know, like what kind of studies have been done that are guiding these decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely do that. And before I do that, I want to say right up front that I understand that this is a very complicated issue, and I really hope that we can find a creative way for all children to have an educational experience that meets their developmental and academic and social and physical and emotional and nutritional needs, and also their parents' need for childcare this fall, and that we might want to think right now about outside-the-box ways to do this so that we're not scrambling to meet the diversity of educational needs that we have in our communities at the last minute 
if opening schools in the United States and in Colombia uh, ends up resulting in a rise in SARS-CoV cases. Um, right, exactly. When, Thank you for saying that really well. So when I think about this question, one of the first things that I want to know is how often do children become infected with this novel coronavirus? And very fortunately for all of us, um, everybody's asking that question right now and um, writing some, some pretty good some pretty good answers. The Kaiser Family Foundation just published a really nice report yesterday, which um, I can email to you so that it can be posted along with any other information from this program. And one of the things that they covered is that, in summary, children get much less sick than adults. They are much less likely to need to be hospitalized. They're much less likely to die. Over, um, although a very small number will get sick, like very sick. And the thing that they're talking about right now is that MIST-C, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which we don't understand very well. And, um, and we're, we're just starting to, starting to know more about that. The Kaiser Family Foundation reports that 90% or greater of children, especially young children who are infected, are likely to be completely asymptomatic. So it means that it's hard for us to know um, how often they get infected because they're unlikely to show symptoms. And according to current data, so this is just up to now, this will change over time, children under the age of 18 make up 22% of the United States population, but they account for fewer than 1% of U.S. COVID-19 deaths. So that's death. Right. Right. Okay. So and another that, th that, oh, the fact ahead. that they are asymptomatic is sort of a, a gem and a, 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 an underminer. Um, it right. means that they don't get, get terribly sick. We don't need to worry about their safety. If a person has an illness and you can't, they can't even tell, um, there's some... Uh, evidence maybe that uh, adults who are asymptomatic can also can have uh, CT cha changes on their CT scans of their lungs, and we do not know what that means long term. Um, and I don't know if anybody's looked at that with children, but probably what it means is it's not going to undermine their health. But it also means that we don't know who's sick. So in a building with a lot of students in it, we don't know which ones have it, or if anybody does, or if they all do. <laughs> right. So that absolutely is, is true. And it brings up the next big question that I have, which is how often do children spread it to other people, um, right. other children and other adults? And the, the real answer is that we don't know. Um, we do know that children can transmit SARS-CoV-2 to other people, and we really don't have enough information to understand how likely that is to happen and under what circumstances that happens. And so why do we not know? Um, I'm going to read just a couple of points from the Kaiser Family Foundation's report because they explain this very well. So I'm directly quoting my report. First, children have been less likely to be tested for coronavirus infection compared to adults. Testing, particularly in the United States where testing capacity constraints have been common, has been focused on symptomatic patients, especially those with severe symptoms, and children exhibit fewer and milder symptoms compared to adults. So... A second reason is because children are less likely to be symptomatic. They may also be less likely to be identified as the index case during a contact tracing investigation, and therefore their role in transmission could be under-recognized 
and underestimated. And thirdly, that children may have different social mixing patterns compared to adults coming into close contact with others at different rates. This may complicate comparisons of transmission between children and adults. On the one hand, children may have had fewer contacts with adults during times when schools and daycares were closed, but on the other, may have a greater number of close contacts than adults when in a more typical school environment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that we, you know, in this really beautiful way, that sums up exactly how we're um, concerned about it. The uh, the third question for me is also the safety and the transmissibility of the adult in the school building. I think often when we think about schools, we think that it's going to be a bunch of children there, and we forget that there are actually a significant number of adults who are right. teachers and administrators and other staff. Right. Right. So another question that I have when I think about schools and transmission is at what age do children become more likely to spread SARS-CoV-2 more like adults? Right. Mm-hmm. And this question is really pertinent right now, partly because a lot of the op-eds that are being published in national papers and a lot of um, a lot of articles that are being posted on Facebook are quoting a new study from South Korea that starts to answer this question. And like all studies, the study does have limitations, um, but it gives us another little piece of the puzzle of, you know, the answer to at what point do children start to spread this like adults. So this study from South Korea seems to indicate that it happens sometime after the age of 10 maybe around the time of puberty. So this study is a preprint from the Journal of Infectious Diseases, which means in this case, it has been accepted for publication and it will be officially published in October of 2020. And you can view this study on the CDC website. I'm not actually gonna read the list of authors because there are more than 25 of them, (laughs) but they are all um, public health professionals in um, South Korea. So for this study, the researchers... So a credible list of of researchers. Correct. They are a credible list of researchers. The study has been peer-reviewed because it has been accepted by the journal. It just has not been published yet. Right. Um, But it has been... Well, it has not been published formally. It has been published as a preprint by the journal, which will be publishing it formally in October. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so, and so, yeah, tell us a little bit more about what it says, because I think it gets referenced and then people make um, big conclusions about policy based on it. And sometimes those p- people are referencing the same study and making different conclusions. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I see that all the time. And I, I like to remind myself that no study is ever the final word on anything and that often what we're seeing with studies is just the different pieces of a complicated puzzle as opposed to the answer to a yes or no question. So none of these studies can say yes or no, school opening is safe or unsafe, um, but they can tell us more about what conditions might have to exist for it to be safer, you know, or what conditions make it less safe. Right. So in this case, this 
um, team of researchers followed about 59,000 contacts of index patients in South Korea, and this happened between January 20th and March 27th of this year. So for the purposes of this study, the index patient was defined as either the first lab-confirmed case of COVID-19 among the contacts or the first case in an epidemiologic investigation of a cluster, so a known group of people um, who are in some way related to each other. Um, in this study, high-risk contacts who were defined as household contacts or people who actually live with the index patient and their healthcare providers were tested routinely even if they didn't have symptoms. So they intentionally tested all of the household members and healthcare providers for those index patients. Non-household contacts, so people that didn't live with them and that were not their healthcare providers, were only tested if they became symptomatic. So overall, the study concluded that 11.8% of household contacts were positive for the novel coronavirus and 1.9% of non-household contacts were positive. Although again, those people were only tested if they were um, symptomatic. Right. So the researchers broke down the rate of positive household contacts by decade of age of the index patient. So they started with birth to age nine and then 10 to 19 and 20 to 29 and so on. Right. And they concluded that the highest rate of household contact infection, which was 18.6%, so just under 20% of the household contacts were positive, occurred in homes where the index patient was 10 to 19 years old, which suggested to them that older children may spread SARS-CoV-2 as well as, or in some cases, better than adults. So what's interesting is right. that the that's lowest... A, yeah, that's that 10 to 19 age where they're still behaviorally acting a little bit more like children, but right. maybe metabolically more like adults as far as the ability to be infected and to transmit. So they're still hugging exactly. and in people's faces and sharing um, things that they put in their mouth and things that they touch. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's possible the authors, you know, we there's a lot that we don't know about that, but the authors had several thoughts about why that why that rate was so high for that age group. And they thought, you know, one reason is that they might be, as you're saying, you know, metabolically as likely as adults to, or physiologically as likely as adults to be able to spread it. Um, but it's also possible that these older children, as you say, are acting a little bit more like children, <laughs> you know, that they're receiving uh, more care from their parents, especially if they're sick. Um, like they were experiencing oh, right. more close contact and also that they may not be as capable, um, like developmentally capable as being, uh, at being socially distant as people of other ages. Right. Yeah. So another really interesting thing about this study is that the lowest rates of household contact infection, which were 5.3% occurred in homes where the index case were children ages birth to nine. So what we see is okay. <laughs> so at around 10, they go from uh, least likely to transmit to most likely to transmit. Um, that's what this study seems to indicate. And we don't know if that actually happens right at 10 or if actually that happens at age 12. But because of the breakdown of ages, we don't see right. that. Um, yeah. 
So some of the limitations of the study are that non-household contacts were only tested if they became symptomatic. So it's very likely that many asymptomatic non-household contacts weren't identified, and we don't know how likely people of different ages would be to have actually infected these contacts because we didn't test them all. Another limitation is that this kind of contact tracing, the kind that was happening in this study, um, it's very valuable, but um, can't definitively determine the direction of transmission. So right. it's possible that some of the index cases identified in the study were not actually the first people to be infected in their families. Um, it's also possible that some household contacts who were positive were infected by people who weren't in their household. You know, we can't. Right. They were. They got it at work or shopping. Or right. A party. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but the main takeaway from the study is that. Older children, in this case, in this study, defined as between the ages of 10 to 19, may transmit the infection to close contacts as well as or better than adults. Um, so that, that is the summary of this particular study, which, again, if you're reading op-eds in major newspapers or you're reading information that came in on Facebook and they're talking about how well children may be able to spread the novel coronavirus, they are likely referencing that paper. This study, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. The other thing I wanted to point out, and I, I am probably going to be um, accused of beating a dead horse, but I'm going to beat it anyway, and that <laughs> is that they analyzed the reports for 59,000 contacts of 5,700 mm -hmm. uh, cases. Correct. So that's 10, a little bit more than 10 contacts per right. case. And in Boone County, we have an average of about 2.7 contacts per case. Right. Yeah. Just good, just pointing that out. Okay, yep. Sarah, back to back to school. <laughs> so some somebody wanted to talk to me. I I let them know that I can't. Go ahead. Okay. So Something else to consider is what have other countries done and what were the outcomes? And this is another area where you may have read op-eds, you may have gotten notes on Facebook about um, why it either is or is not safe to open schools at this point in person. Um, and they are likely referencing this paper. And this paper is a preprint which has not been accepted for publication yet, uh, which means it also has not been peer-reviewed. Um, to be clear, I am not a peer reviewer for this article. What I'm doing is summarizing am I? Yeah, summarizing the information yeah. in the article because it's being widely shared. And you are welcome to read it online. It's been published on a preprint server. It's called Shut and Reopen, the Role of Schools and the Spread of COVID-19 in Europe. And this is published by, or excuse me, prepared by... Um, Helena Stage, Joseph Singleton, Sanmitra Ghosh, Francesca Scarabell, Lorenzo Pellis, and Thomas Finney. There are some upfront limitations of the study that we should say right away. Um, one of them is that this study is looking at uh, different countries in Europe and what happened when they closed and then reopened schools, but countries do not all um, collect data in the same way. So each country had their own data collection going on, and it's not standard across countries. Um, something else to consider about this, and I think this is very, very important given that the pandemic is ongoing, is that 
this preprint was published June 26th. So it was published over a month ago. That means that schools have opened and closed and infection rates have risen and fallen in all of these places. You know, they've continued to change since this was published. So we're looking at a snapshot, but not a definitive answer to what happens in these countries. So the the brief summary of this paper um, is that in Germany, community infections did not rise after a limited return to school that happened in April. Um, And by limited, they meant they had the equivalent of uh, graduating seniors come in for exams, and they had nine-year-olds who they felt like were at a particularly uh, vulnerable place academically come in. Um, That limited return coincided with the opening of some non-essential businesses, but a month later, infections did rise after all ages returned to school. The authors think that this might be because it's hard to maintain social distancing when all the students are actually in the school um, and that older students may be transmitting the virus more often. So since the time this preprint was submitted, a number of German schools have experienced outbreaks and some of them have closed in-person classes. In Denmark, cases did not initially rise when they opened schools for the younger grades. And by younger grades, we're talking about the equivalent of kindergarten to fifth grade in the United States. Some of the prevention measures that they took in Danish schools were to split classes with 20 children into two or three smaller groups, to space seats at least six and a half feet apart, wash hands every two hours, hold many classes outside, reduce the hours of the school day, Some schools asked families that had a parent at home during the day to keep their children at home to make more space available for social distancing for the children that um, did not have a parent at home. And this one is particularly interesting to me. They opened parks for longer hours to make more opportunities for children to be active outside of school. So this wasn't that they were necessarily taking the children who were in the school out to a park. They were trying to give children opportunities independent of their school attendance to be outdoors and play. Exactly. Right. And they were trying to support the people who were keeping their children at home in order to make more room for the children that had to go to school. Right. Yeah. Uh, the country of Norway had no increase in cases with a full return to school for children of all ages. Um, They did have very low rates of community transmission before they reopened school, and they had a very large amount of testing overall. So that's the the synopsis from this paper. And you can see that you could pick and choose, (laughs) you know, to say that opening schools is either safe or dangerous or and in reality what we're seeing is that there are some conditions where it seems to work well and other conditions where it doesn't um and what we also see is that again after this was was um published as a preprint we started to get information from other places too so national public radio profiled israel's experience with schools reopening on july 10th so even that is several weeks old now. But what what they noted... We're just living in interesting times where things published the same month are already old. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. we are in in interesting times. 
Originally, Israel's plan was to open schools for children age nine and younger. Um, Last-minute negotiations changed that plan, and some older children went back to school with the younger kids. And within about two weeks, all of the children were back at school. Um, They didn't initially see a rise in infections, but shortly after everyone had returned to school, Israel experienced a heat wave, and they decided to not make the children wear masks at school anymore. Um, And then they experienced some outbreaks, and in fact, many of them have needed to close their in-person classes. So That's an interesting natural experiment. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as you're saying, that literally from week to week, as conditions change, um, what we're really seeing is how all these variables interact and what they might mean about what happens to infections in the community when the school is open. We're also seeing how very difficult um, decision-making can be because there are so many contexts in which um, people who are trying to run our schools which is no easy job in uh, normal times. Right. Um, have to, like, okay, well, we've had a plan and now we have a heat wave. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, we've, we see public health people having to respond to things like, okay, in Texas, we're having everybody, we're closing down public spaces. Oh, but there's a hurricane and we, the shelters are places where people crowd. So I, I guess we have to do that, you know, and right. then we get to see what happens when that happens. Right. It is a really, really challenging thing, for Mm -hmm. sure. So I think what we can take away from all of these studies, you know, again, we cannot take away a yes or no. Um, What we can take away is a sense of the kind of variables that might impact whether having in-person schools impact infection rates in a community. And some of the things that you know, we're seeing that would impact those rates would be the number of active cases and the degree of spread in the community before the school reopened. So universally, schools that opened um, without a subsequent rise in community cases did so in areas that already had a really low number of cases overall and a small amount of community spread. Um, And if infection rates in the community are high when you're opening the school, Um, opening the school might contribute to a rise in cases, even if you're being very careful. So even if the school does, you know, all the things that Denmark did or something like that, if you have really high rates of infection in your community anyway, when you're starting out, that might not be enough. Right. Um, Along those same lines, the degree to which the whole community is buying into prevention tools like social distancing and mask wearing probably impacts school infections a lot. Um, so communities with a higher rate of social distancing and mask wearing were less likely to have a rise in cases with the opening of schools. Which children attend school makes a big difference. Communities with schools which opened in person only for preschool and elementary age children were less likely to have a rise in cases. Communities where middle and high school age children went back in person were more likely to see a rise in cases. Again, possibly because these children are more likely to be infected by and to spread the novel coronavirus, and also maybe because they're more likely to be exposed to a large number of other students. Um, They do things like change classes and participate in non-academic school-associated activities like sports. Um, What prevention measures are taken in the school? So are the students actually able to be socially distant? 
Do they stay in small, stable groups, or do they move widely around the school and other children? Do they wear masks? Do they observe basic hygiene habits like hand washing? Are they actually inside a physical building, or are they outside? So we know that schools with socially distant mass students um, who stayed in small, stable groups or learned outside were less likely to experience a rise in cases. And then what non-academic activities happen inside and outside or associated with open schools? Because schools aren't just about going to class, and this is, this is partly why they're so important to our communities um, and also why it's very tricky to figure out what we can and can't do um, without seeing a rise in infections. So things like before and after school programs um, where large groups of children might mingle, clubs, sports teams, play dates, visiting with friends, social activities like dances, carpooling, riding school buses, you know, all of these things have the potential to increase spread within a school system and the surrounding community. And yeah. This last thing I think is really important to remember too, that the community's ability to test and to perform accurate contact tracing in and outside of the school and the ability to keep accurate data about cases in and out of school, those are critical parts of us understanding how in-person schools affect transmission in communities. If we don't um, have the ability to keep that or to gather and then synthesize that data, then it will be very hard for us to really answer the question of what can we do with open schools and not have a rise in infections in our community. Right, and I think one of the, the topics that uh, Jenny Chadwick and I talked about last night on the air was also what other things are we doing in the community that either limits or encourages spread. So, you know, we are trying to, in Columbia, try to figure out about opening our public schools for our, you know, primary and secondary students in the context of um, we are also going to see between twenty and 30,000 people move back into Boone County to attend colleges and in the context of still having um, very few limitations effectively on activities in bars and dine-in restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, so the, as you say, that uh, these things all happen in a context. Right, right. So all of those things, while they may not be the first things that we think about when we think about schools reopening, all of those things are part of the community picture that have the ability to influence whether or not opening schools results in a rise in cases. All right. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. I'm wondering if you had any other thoughts that you wanted to end with before we um, uh, turn the, the airwaves back over to KOPN. Well, as a, as a parent in this community, I want to reiterate that I, I see that this is just an extremely challenging puzzle. And as I said at the beginning, I hope that we can think really hard right now about what are some creative ways that we can meet the diversity of needs of all of the children in Boone County and really all over the United States um, as, we, as we try to figure out this really tricky puzzle. 
Well said. Thank you so much, Sarah David, local midwife, uh, recent graduate of Master's in Public Health Program, mother of school-aged children, and uh, my friend. Thank you so much for sharing uh, some of your ponderings with us. And to the listeners, please um, wash your hands, wear your mask, take your vitamin D, and cultivate a cheerful confidence that one of the reasons you are here today is because you, you and your body can handle a viral illness. Thank you so much, Peter. That was a highly engaging discussion uh, about the nuance of reopening schools. If you were just joining us, uh, Dr. Alleman and uh, Madam Davis, who is a trained public health professional with a master's in public health, were discussing, among other things, uh, a very, very interesting scholarly article. It is a preprint, a preprint uh, as of yet. It's not been peer-reviewed yet. But they were discussing uh, some <coughs> case studies from Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and also Germany, among other things. Rest assured that if you missed any part of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety on KOPN.org. We will also be posting to our Facebook feed along with the links to the aforementioned articles. And we are available on both Apple and Spotify podcasts. So you know, no need to miss Community Pulse. As always, we welcome your questions, comments, and insights you have related to the coronavirus and programming here on KOPN. Leave a message for us at 573-874-1139 or shoot us an email at gm at kopn.org. Please do stay safe and stay informed, Columbia. Community Pulse will return on Monday. Keep an eye on those local statistics, as Dr. Alleman was so kind to remind all of us at the beginning of the discussion when she was discussing data. Once we get to an overall caseload of about 50 in the county, there may be some problems uh, in terms of hospital capacity. So please stay safe, stay informed, and above all, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station.